Hey, Tuma here. Welcome back to Diversity and Representation in Books, hosted by the owner of Tuma's Books, an online bookstore offering a carefully curated selection of culturally diverse books by authors of color. We aim to share stories that will validate, inspire, and teach. I hope you enjoy today's episode. There are a ton of celebrations in June, but the two cultural ones are Caribbean Heritage Month and National Immigration Heritage Month. Um, I actually recently learned about National Immigration Heritage Month, and I can't believe that I didn't know about it until this year. Um, I learned about it from one of my followers um, on Instagram. But anyway, in today's episode, um, I wanted to get into our June monthly book club titles. I wanted to share a description of each title, talk a little bit about why I selected it, share some author bio, and then read a brief excerpt out loud to you all so that you can get a little taste of each title to decide which one you want to choose for your monthly book club this month. But first things first, in case you're new to two months books, uh, my monthly book club service helps readers diversify their reading by offering three unique titles with diverse you know cultural heritage representation that you might not have encountered that you might not come across on your own um, and that i think are really powerful stories um, or texts to offer to readers you get to choose which one you want to read that month or you can get all three and it's a really flexible service in terms of i have one-time options prepaid or a monthly subscription so it's really about whatever um, way works for you so our first title for the June book club is Lizards Hold the Sun by Ta- Dani Trujillo um, and it's an indigenous romance, indigenous Mexican representation. Um, the archaeology field in contemporary fiction is really interesting. It's, it's been a field that I've always been like, you know, slightly interested in, but not enough to like dig in deeper. And it's one that you don't often see in, in fiction or in, you know, the books that um, I've read or that are promoted as much. So I thought this was really interesting. And then um, it's also a mature romance without like a lot of the tropes that I find annoying or childish. Um, I'm at a place where I just want like two adults finding love um, without like silly miscommunications or like, I don't know, enemies to lovers isn't like really my thing. Like I don't believe that. Like I don't know how that works in real life. So I can't like suspend like disbelief enough to enjoy it in my romance. but yeah, so it looks really, um, I think this is going to be a really awesome text. So what is it about? So we have Zamora Chavez, um, who is an archaeologist in a white man's field, but she's a brown Mexican indigenous woman kicking butt and taking names anyway. So I'm all about that, right? I love strong um, women of color, like, you know, just doing their own thing and like exceeding like others' expectations of them. So Zamora is selected to lead the creation of a tribal museum in Bunchbury, Canada. So this takes place in Canada. Um, and since it's so remote, she has to rely on Callahan, the aloof. I don't know why I find the word aloof like really interesting. Like I love that word and I find it really sexy when it describes like fictional men. I don't know why. Um, so Callahan is the aloof architect for the museum. So cue romance. Nah, JK. Um, it's not going to be that easy. But um, what's great is that both characters have depth, okay? Callahan Yellowbird is a caretaker. He's been providing for his family since his mother's death when he was a teen. He's had to grow up too quickly, which is super relatable to me as the oldest sibling of immigrant parents. I feel like I also had to grow up quickly and kind of help support my family at a really young age. That has made me like super mature um, than a lot of my peers. But anyway, 
So he feels stuck, right? So even though he got his architecture degree 10 years ago, um, the Bunchberry Tribal Museum is his first official project, right? That means it's a big deal, right? It has to work out, right? So he don't got time for Zamora to come through and, and distract him, right? Um, but he has to decide if romance and his dreams are actually in the card for him. And the two of them have to decide if they belong together in the midst of ancient artifacts, shooting stars, and their cultural and familial obligations. All right, so if you're not ready to already just, you know, grab this title and read it already, I'm not sure what's going to convince you. But a little bit about Dani Trujillo. So she's a fiction storyteller born of Pueblo and Mexican descent. The desert is her happy place. I can't really. I'm a city girl through and through. I don't even think I could survive in the desert. Um, and I don't know what that means. I feel like I have a very like inaccurate image of what it means to live in the desert. But that's her happy place. And it serves as inspiration for many of her work. She holds a Bachelor's of Anthropology from the University of Hawaii and a Master of Forensic Behavioral Science from Alien International University. Um, so fun fact, I really find anthropology really interesting. I took a one-on-one class in undergrad and while everyone else in the class was hating it, I was really into it. Like understanding like the structures of like human culture and how there are underlining similarities in all of them, but then the differences are there as well. Like, it makes sense that I do the work that I do now, basically. She currently resides on the East Coast with her husband, um, two spooky black cats, an elder chihuahua named after jeans, and the pl- and a plethora of ghosts inhabiting her 1949 home. Okay. I, w- I was with her up until the ghosts. I don't... I, I, I would be out. I, would, I can't deal with ghosts. But anyway, so that's a little bit about Danny. Um, so now let's get into a little bit of the book. So I'm going to read the first couple of pages... Just sit back, listen in, um, and then feel free to comment and hit me up on social media um, and let me know what you think. Chapter one. Zamora's nails tapped an unconscious rhythm into her thigh. How much farther could it be? It hadn't looked like this on the map. The trees were never ending and she hadn't seen the horizon in hours. White water sprayed against the side of the boat, the scent of salt curling around her nose with her loose hair. The group was silent, save for the swish of windbreakers brushing against each other. Only three other passengers along for the ride. She said a prayer that the incoming summer will be warmer than this. Zamora clenched her hands around Anubis and his fuzzy sweater, the air bitingly cool as they slid across the water. Zamora rescued Anubis when he wandered onto their dig site in Jalisco as a skinny puppy. He spent the first eight months of his life with her camping on that same site. Zamora had brought him to work every day since. Docking along a wide wooden platform, Zamora found her name written on a piece of cardboard between the hands of a tall, blue-haired woman wearing a wide smile. She she waved to the woman, dragging her suitcase across the rocky mud to the idling car. Anubis Anubis was strapped to a leash around Zamora's hips his nose sniffing everything he could reach. His mohawk stood completely upright from the salted wind as if he had been electrocuted. (laughs) A puppy with a mohawk? That sounds so cute. Hi, a voice squealed. You're finally here. The woman wrapped their hands together, pulling them into her chest, then pressing them back into Zamora's chest. Breaths shared between them. And she opened the car door, saving them from the whipping cold wind. I'm Rosebud. Tucking her short blue curls behind her ear, Rosebud navigated them out of the dirt parking lot. I'm who you've been emailing during this whole process. She scratched Anubis 
fluffing his mohawk with her long nails. Oh, Zamora eased. The women in the emails have been extremely kind and helpful. I'm sorry, I didn't recognize your name. I don't think I've slept since I left Mexico. No worries. I'm sorry your cabin isn't ready yet. Sometimes the boys forget to lock the doors and the bears rose a bit early this year. She rolled her eyes. You've going to, you're going to have a great time staying with my wife and me. She's a fantastic cook. That sounds amazing. Zamora's stomach grumbled at the mention of a meal. Are you hungry now? Damn, was her stomach that loud? Let's get something at the cafe and then I'll bring you to the house so you can settle in and get some rest. Rosebud told Zamora how they were having an early spring. The air far warmer than typical this time of year. Is it always this humid? Zamora asked, taking a deep breath in the recycled air of the cab. Outside, the air was thick as though she was underwater. Oh no, Rosebud laughed as they pulled onto a smooth dirt road framed by trees on both sides. Our, pinters can, our winters can be pretty dry. Does it snow a lot? Zamora leaned with the car as they went around a curve, the earth dropping straight to the sea below. Her fingers gripped the edge of her seat, looping through Anubis's leash to keep him close. Well, we usually only get a few snowfalls, but it can be up to a meter or more at a time. Rosebud shook her head. It's beautiful, though. The trees covered in white lakes, frozen enough for skating, fish hungry enough to go for a lure. Can't wait, Zamora grimaced. She hated the cold and had next to no experience with snow. She had been in she had been to New York City in the dead of winter once. That was the extent of her snow experience. Piles of dirty gray snow and icy crosswalks. The trees were budding, colorful flowers peeking from their green shells. Noisy. It was noisy here. Birds sang to each other and the air whistled while the sea ebbed at the shore. The casino rose out of the trees like an amethyst. A banner hung on the construction fence. Welcome to Bunchberry Nation. Their tribal seal was a petite yellow hummingbird. Its wings spread wide as it soared the sky. The car ambled over a narrow bridge passing a weathered wooden building with the words, This is Indian land, spray painted in red on the side. Town begins right about here. Rosebar pricked her chin forward with a dirt road turned to asphalt. Main Street is pretty much all we have. The Trading Post, Good Morning Cafe, Gas and Go, City Hall. That was it. The entire Main Street. Zamora could see the asphalt turn to dirt just past the buildings. There was nothing visible beyond that, save for trees and bushes. This place really was remote. This is City Hall, where we work. Rosebud bumped Zamora with her elbow, as though they had already developed an inside joke. Will I have my own cabin still? Zamora glanced at Anubis. He was a smaller, hairless dog, so he didn't irritate people's allergies. She hoped they wouldn't take up too much space and overstay their welcome before the exc excavation began. You do. There was a slight bear situation, she grimaced. It should be ready soon. Bear situation? Zamora controlled the expression on her face, but she wasn't interested in seeing a bear while living here. I wouldn't be either, girl. We're pretty remote up here. Sometimes bears pass through town. Rosebud waved a hand in a sweeping motion, showing the insignificance of the bear situation. It's no big deal. The house comes with a rifle. A rifle? Great. Up for lunch? Rosebud pointed across the street. 
That sounds amazing. Zamora's stomach grumbled at the mention of a meal. Rosebud guided them across the street to the Good Morning Cafe. Assuring her that Anibis was allowed inside, they sat at the bar for quickest service. Anibis tucked himself between Zamora's ankles, big brown eyes hopeful she would drop a few scraps. Sitting side by side at the bar, Zamora ordered a mutton sandwich on a bannock bun. It was the size of a small pizza. She eyed it, suspicious of her ability to finish it. Do you want to share? Rosebud offered her green chili chicken soup to Zamora. The intoxicating scent of the cilantro-packed soup made Zamora's mouth water. She nodded. Absolutely. Rosebud asked the waiter for another bowl while Zamora put half her sandwich on Rosebud's place. Where do you guys get hatch green chilies out here anyway? The chef is Navajo. Rosebud smiled. Ashley is our chef's cousin. Our chief's cousin. She moved up here from Shiprock to take over the cafe a few years ago. She gets like four huge shipments every summer to last the entire year. She's got the whole province addicted. People will drive over an hour just to try the hatch chilies. I understand their dedication, Zamora smiled. Mama makes this delicious salsa with, tomati, with, tomali, with tomatillos and hatch green chilies. Zamora scooped a spoonful of the soup into her salivating mouth. You'd love it. That sounds delicious. I'll ask Ashley for some chili so you can make it. Rosebud smiled as though it would be that simple. But Samora wasn't convinced she could find tomatillos all the way up here. A brunette woman joined them at the bar top, wiping her hands on a towel made from bluebird flower sacks. They told me there was another desert person out here. She pushed her lips forward at the soup. What do you think? It's fantastic, Zamora smiled at Ashley, enjoying another mouthful of the spicy broth, green chunks of chili, red corn, and shredded chicken. The soup had arrived with fresh limes and cilantro with raw white onion. It tasted like home, like the heat of the desert and the sand in her shoes and the way spices leap in the air. Spices had a way of sinking into her skin, making themselves at home and reminding her of where she belonged, even when home was miles away. She devoured the soup while Rosebud and Ashley discussed the very intense procurement of chilies and customs clearances necessary to import them to this tiny island. Zamora listened with half an ear, her attention stolen by the gentle hands of fresh roasted cumin. She could smell her mother's tamales and hear the sheep braying outside. Closing her eyes, she made a promise to return, as always. No matter how far she strayed, Chihuahua always called her home. But for now, she was here. Okay, so next up, we have a debut novel. Um, and I love supporting first-time writers, um, especially if the novel sounds as phenomenal as Notes on Her Color by Jennifer Neal does. So first... As much as I try not to judge a book by its cover, I do also love like a compelling cover. And honestly, the publishers put a lot of money into creating, you know, compelling covers. So whatever, why not? So I fell in love with the cover first. It's very like Picasso-esque in terms of like the different, um, it's almost like a collage of images of like color patches. It also reminds me of like makeup and how like we put on makeup, not how I put on makeup because I don't really know how to put on makeup, but you know when you're contouring and like concealer and all of that, it's all like these different 
patches and parts of different colors and product and then they all like blend together seamlessly and i and i wonder if that's a theme somehow in this piece i feel like it is and then there's also these like piano keys that are like looping around and wrapping around the image of the face um so it's a really gorgeous cover and the synopsis was also so interesting and super unique um it's about a woman gabrielle who is black and indigenous and her she, she's inherited the power to um, change her skin color um and so she is forced to or you know i guess pressured to because of her <laughs> racist father to change her skin color so that she passes as white and I just think this is such an interesting concept because I couldn't help but wonder what I would choose to do if I had the color to change, if I had the power to change my skin color, right? I feel like younger me would have definitely like considered maybe going a few skin tones lighter, right? It's only recently that dark skinned black women have gotten their flowers and um, are starting to be portrayed as beautiful. And so I think younger me was definitely insecure about my skin tone. Um, not extremely so because I think my dad who I've inherited my skin tone from was really great about like kind of uplifting and affirming me in that way and you know giving me compliments telling me that I was beautiful so I I, I think it wasn't as hard but it but it's still hard competing with all of the other images that you see on the media and fashion magazines and all that is that the teenager is so susceptible to that you don't really care what your parents are saying um so i think i would have went a few shades lighter which is so sad to say but then like what would i have done with that i don't know but anyway so this concept was really interesting to me so what it's about so the summary it says florida quiche um, swirls together with magical realism in this glittering debut novel about a young black and indigenous woman who has who learns to change the color of her skin, right? Um, I'm not from Florida, so I don't really know what that means. But I think for those who do live there or from there, I think you'll find that connection um, from this book. But I love novels with magical realism. It's, I don't know, I just love it. Um, so Gabrielle has always had a complicated relationship with her mother. So anyone who's down for those mother-daughter relationships, this one is going to hit home for you. Her mother, Tallulah. Um, and it's a relationship that's marked with intimacy and resilience because of a volatile patriarch, right? The father in the family um, has created this, you know, unhealthy kind of space that's not really safe for them unless they told a line, right? Everything in their house is bleached white. Um, even Gabrielle, who inherited the ability to change the color of her skin from her mother, is told to pass for white, as I said earlier, so she doesn't upset her father, which is so wild to me, right? So then this vital mother-daughter bond um, kind of implodes when Tallulah is hospitalized for mental health crisis. So this book also um, is going to explore mental health as well. So now that Gabrielle is separated from her mother for the first time, she has to learn how to control her own temperamental shifts um, in her color on her own. Meanwhile, um, she's spending a year after high school focusing on piano lessons because you know, this is a skill that her father thinks is going to make her a more appealing candidate for pre-med programs. I also wonder if that's his choice of her becoming a doctor. Um, her instructor is a queer dark-skinned woman named Dominique, um, and she seems to, like, represent everything that Gabrielle is missing in her life. She's creative, confident, and more importantly, 
she provides this nurturing sense of love that Gabrielle is looking for. So notes on her color is really going to follow um, a young woman looking for a world beyond her family's carefully coded existence. Um, it's lushly written and a haunting tale that shows how love in its best sense can be a liberating force from destructive origins. Yeah, right. I'm so excited to read this. And let's get into a little bit about um, Jennifer Neal. So first of all, her author biopic is like gorgeous. She has like these braids and the ends are curled. And she has like this amazing red lipstick that just like pops amazingly against her skin tone. Um, so she's an American Australian author, artist, and occasional stand-up comedian. Okay, so now I have we have to look into her 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 comedy work. Um, she's a graduate of Florida State University the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. She's written for NPR, Playboy Gay Magazine, The Cut, The Root, and many other publications. She is a McDowell Fellow and a Pushcart Prize nominist ethicist. She lives in Berlin for now, where she works as a freelance producer and translator. Okay, so she definitely has written a ton. She seems really well-versed in a lot of topics. Um, so I think, you know, this is going to be it. So now let's dive into the excerpt so that you guys can get a little taste of this work. So first, I love reading dedications, especially when they seem like carefully written. So the dedication for this is for Natasha Lomboy, who showed me that for every love language that exists, there is at least one person in the world who can speak it fluently. That's so sweet. I love that. Okay. Then the book also starts with a quote from Watson Shire, who is best known for um, having a part in a Beyonce song. Was it Brown Skin Girls? I think. I don't know. I, I, I'm really bad at following um, music in that way. But anyway, the quote is, you can't make homes out of human beings. Someone should have already told you that, right? So this idea of like you have to find home, I guess, within yourself and not other people. All right. So chapter one. <clears throat> My mother could change the color of her skin. From what I'm told, it was a gift she inherited from her mother who inherited it from her mother before her, passed down from blood to blood, along with diseases, artistic hysteria and a predilection for loving the wrong men. My great-grandmother was an Annie Yunwiat witch and used to change color before sneaking into sediments to gather supplies and conduct trade. I was told that she could assume the form of the most respectable white governess and handle herself in a way that made others believe the color change was more than just skin deep with mannerisms, words, posture, and a general air of entitlement that lodged it deep within her bones and held them hostage like a duplicitous marionette. That all changed the day she met my great-grandfather outside the general store in Asuela County. It's named for the slaughter chief whose pronunciation its white residents butchered long after his death. And I'm sorry, I'm struggling with these pronunciations. This is where I realized that a lot of words I only know by sight and I'm not sure how to pronounce them. So, and clearly this is, you know, more sophisticated writing. So, I apologize, but I'm going to keep going, y'all. My great-grandfather was tall, 
brawny with large shoulders like coconuts and thick long legs roped in muscle. He wore only a pair of filthy trousers and sat in the dirt next to a pile of horse manure, bound to a horse cart by a slipknot looped around his bruised neck and shackled around his wrist. As he waited for his master to return, he met eyes with the woman he would eventually marry in a fire ceremony beneath the North Star. My great-grandmother had been the color of fresh milk, but quickly blushed in her natural russet-colored state when she saw his copper-colored eyes. He watched this transformation all while holding her gaze, and when she stood before him with soft red skin and sharp cheekbones, he just smiled up at her and said, Well, would you look at that? My mother also told me that the tale of when my grandmother, who had long suspected my grandfather of indiscretions, turned into a deep crimson red the night an unknown light-skinned woman showed up on their front lawn. The woman held a bottle of cheap whiskey in her hand and shouted at the Florida midnight air, demanding that my grandmother release my grandfather. She said that they were in love and nothing would come between them, not even my grandmother's 20 children. My grandmother emerged from the front door, the screen door swinging shut behind her on its rusted hinges. She walked down the broken porch steps, gripping a shotgun in her weathered hands, as red as new blood. A single shot rang out into the sky, cutting the silence into roaring shards, and then she pointed the gun at the woman on the grass. If you ever come back to my house or see my husband again, I'll kill you, she said. The woman stared at my grandmother for some long moments, then dropped her half-full bottle of whiskey on the stark grass and walked away, disappearing into the night. I wish I knew more about these people, but I only know what I've been told. There aren't any books dedicated to their memory or birth certificates to confirm their screaming entrance into this world. The only proof I have that they existed at all is that I am here to ruminate over who they may have been. When I struggled to fall asleep as a young girl, my mother retold the stories of these people time and again. Her voice is reinventing the chronicles of our prede prede predecessors. Their smells, shapes, colors, and misfortunes. She constructed whole landscapes out of fragmented memories, and she developed the individual characters needed to occupy them. She was good at that, giving me just enough material to trigger, to trigger the obsessive corners of my mind which happily filled in the scaffolding around her words like concrete i was obsessed with the idea of being related to a witch i first envisioned my great-grandmother as a toothless miscreant with green scaly skin zipping on a broom raining plague and curses down upon the surrounding plantations she salted the earth with the sound of her maniacal laughter in the wake of destruction but as I grew older and began to peruse the dusty shelves of history books at the library, my great-grandmother became an empathetic healer, one who set bones and fought injustice, who gave bold speeches about freedom, and who died defending precious ideals against vicious tyrants and fragile empires. I didn't know the true manner of her death. My mother never told me. Instead, we martyred her at valiant last dance on sacred land or assassinated her in the driveway of her own home, always dying in the arms of the only man she had ever loved. In our darker storylines, 
my great-grandmother was betrayed by the ones she protected, forced into exile in the tropical wilderness of Cuba, or gunned down on stage by faceless men in long coats with deep pockets, wondering how it had all gone so wrong. We changed her story often, swapped endings like trading cards. As she took her final breaths, it was never the bullet or the news or the noose that killed her will to live. It was always and inevitably heartbreak. My mother sprang from her mother's agony as a woman determined to design her own with my father, who rose to the challenge. During his time at law school, my father would sometimes visit a local church to hear my mother sing. He admired the way she straightened her kinky hair into a wavy coif that fell across her face, kissing her lashes. Then one Sunday morning, my mother debuted as the new soprano in the church choir. She wore an oversized violet robe with sleeves that swallowed her hands as she moved from side to side, clapping to the rhythm. When her eyes met, when their eyes met from across the room, my mother said that both her voice and her senses abandoned her, replaced instead with a faint whisper in her ear, in her ear that said, "You can heal him." My father waited for her after the service, introduced himself as the most broken man in the world, and she ran away with him three days later with a promise to fix him. Their wedding gift to her, his wedding gift to her was a brand new piano that she learned to play but never truly mastered. Her gift to him was a failure to keep her word. Ten years later, they had me to fix them both. When I cried, she went to the garage where the old piano was cloaked beneath a tarp and played melodies that put me back to sleep, giving me harmonious dreams. I was named after an angel who could resurrect the dead, but she neglected to mention mentioned that scripture clearly states the world needs to end before I could do just that. And whenever I brought up that important detail, she smiled at me and said, we'll rewrite that chapter someday. This folklore was necessary. I know that now. Preserving our histories re required a degree of invention because we knew so little about the people who made us this way. Not their ages, not their faces, not even some of their names. Any knowledge of who they were was lost in the footnotes of history, having decomposed in much the same way that their bodies did under the dirt that buried them. So I borrowed from the lives of the people I read about in history books, slipping them in and out of the skins of my forebears, mixing memory with history to fill the rot of my family tree, of which I still know so very little. For the sake of whatever lurks beneath the visible realm of this life, I sincerely hope they don't mind. I didn't bother questioning this unique mythology of ours until I was well into creating the one that will save me and destroy everything else. All right, so lastly, we have something cozy and heartwarming. All the Lonely People by Mike Guile is perfect for Caribbean Heritage Month as it follows a Jamaican immigrant, Hubert, as he re-enters the world he's been hiding from all this time. So this book came on my radar from an IG friend um, who recommended it to me as one of their all-time favorite books. So I had marked it as a future monthly book club title a while back, and it took until now to appear because life, and, and that's kind of how I work. But a little bit about 
this book or oh, a little bit more about it so huber is a jamaican immigrant his daughter lives in hold on let me double check where she lives in but she lives um overseas and hold on sorry i'm like totally lost my train of thought um so she lives in australia so he's been having these weekly phone calls with her um where he's been you know you know, saying about how great his life is and what he does. And he's painted this picture of like this perfect retirement where he's having fun and he has great friends and he's totally fulfilled. And it's all a lie, right? Like really his days are all the same. They're dragging on and he's incredibly isolated. He doesn't see a single soul. But then he gets some good news that ends up being like the worst news ever. His daughter is coming back to visit so now he has to somehow recreate the life that he's been lying about. So now he has to fake some fun and find some friends and find fulfillment all before she comes over. But in his like journey in doing that, he does stumble across a second chance's love. He does renew a cherished friendship and he finds himself like roped back into the community so he's no longer as lonely so it looks like his loneliness is about to end once and for all that is if what created his earlier isolation in the first place doesn't come back or doesn't return to send him running back into hiding right so that's what this book is about and they kind of market it as um if you are a fan of a man called of which is actually on my tbr and has been for a while but I, I haven't gotten to it yet. And now I know there's like a TV adaptation of it um, with the, I'm, I'm so bad at actors names, but the guy who played Forrest Gump. Um, so he's in there. So like, I've always been interested in this like cozy, like, you know, feel good story. And I've always wanted to read A Man Called Of, but then when I heard about All the Lonely People, I'm like, well, I'll just read the BIPOC version of that, right? Um, I might still read A Man Called Of, but I know All the Lonely People is higher on my list. So a little bit about Mike Guile. Um, he is actually a black British writer. He was born and raised in B Birmingham. Um, he graduated from Stafford University with a degree in sociology. He moved to London to initially try to become a music journalist, but that didn't happen. And he spent five years working at for a teenage girls magazine um, as what he calls an agony uncle. So that sounds hilarious. Um, and... So he's been writing for years. So he's kind of like, you know, a well-known novelist. He's been a full-time novelist since 1997. So since I was six years old. So he's been doing it for a long time. Um, so I haven't read any of his other work, but I look forward to starting with All the Lonely People and going from there. So that's a little bit about him. Now let's get into that excerpt. And I don't know how these, you know, other podcasters do this like I'm like parched right now with all this talking but anyway <clears throat> all the lonely people by my guile moments before Huber met Ashley for the first time he had been settled in his favorite armchair puss curled up on his lap waiting for Rose to call when the doorbell rang he gave a tut of annoyance wagering it was one of those damn courier people who are always trying to make him take in parcels for his neighbors would you mind accepting this for number 63? They would ask. Yes, me mind a great deal, he would snap. Now clear off. 
and then he will slam the door shut in their faces. <laughs> I don't know why, but I love like grumpy old men. Um, just because I think I'm gonna be a grumpy old woman when I grow up, like I, I'm gonna low key be like stay off my lawn. Um, but anyway, as he shifted puss from his lap and stood up to answer the door, Hubert muttered angrily to himself. Parcels, 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 all day, every day, for people who are never in to receive the damn things. If people want them things so much, why them no just buy it from the shops like everybody else? With words of scathing condemnation loaded and ready to fire, Hubert unlocked the front door and flung it open, only to discover that the person before him wasn't anything like he had been expecting. Instead of a uniform parcel carrier, there stood a young woman with short dyed blonde hair, in a nod toward the recent spell of unseasonably warm April weather, she was wearing a pink tank top, cut-off jeans, and pink flip-flops. Holding her hand was a small child, a girl with blonde hair, also wearing a pink top, shorts, and pink flip-flops. The young woman smiled. Hi there, I'm not disturbing you, am I? Hubert said nothing, but made a mental note that should he need to contact the police, he could tell them that the woman spoke with a funny accent. To his untrained ear, it sounded Welsh or possibly Irish, though he couldn't be entirely sure it was either. She held up her hand as if in surrender. It's okay. I'm not trying to sell you anything or nothing. I just came round to say hello, really. We've just moved in next door. She pointed in the direction of the block of low-rise flats adjacent to Hubert's property. We're new to the area and don't know a single soul. Anyway, this morning I was saying to myself, Ash, you're never going to get to know anyone around here unless you know you start talking to people. So I called round to see the couple in the flat below, but I think they must be out at work. Then I tried the family across the hallway, but they didn't open the door, even though I could hear the TV blaring away. So then I tried all the other flats and got nothing, all out or busy, I suppose. So I got Layla ready and took her to try the mother and toddler group at the library. But it's just closed due to funding problems, apparently, so... She paused, looking at him expectantly, perhaps hoping for a smile or a nod of comprehension. But Hubert remained impassive. The young woman cleared her throat self-consciously, but then continued. My name's Ash. Well, it's Ashley, really, but everyone called me Ash. And this little madame here, she glanced down at the small child, is my daughter Layla. The little girl covered her eyes with both hands, but peeked up at Hubert through the cracks between her fingers. Layla said, Ash, her voice warm with encouragement, say hello to our lovely new neighbor, Mr. Ashley looked at him expectantly, but Hubert continued to say nothing. I think she's a bit shy, said Ash, returning her attention to Layla. You won't believe it to look at me, but I used to be dead shy too when I was a kid. Wouldn't say boo to a goose me. My man was always saying, Ashley Jones, you won't get far in life being shy now, will you? And my nan would be like, oh, leave the poor child alone, Jen. You'll give her a complex. Then ma'am would say, I just don't want her to get set in her ways, like. And then nan would say, she's only a babby. She's too young to get set in her ways. Then ma'am would roll her eyes like this. Oh my God, I'm surprised Hubert still has the door open. I would have been <laughs> like, woo. Anyway, as she paused to illustrate, she did it so well that for a moment, Hubert thought her pupils might have disappeared for good. And say, like she isn't set in her ways. She already hates vegetables. And then nan would struggle and say nothing. The thing is, though, Mam was right. I, had a, I hated vegetables then, and I can't stand them now. Hate the things. She smiled hopefully at Hubert. 
I'm going on, aren't I? I do that. I think it's nerves. In new situations, I just start talking and I can't stop. Anyway, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that it's nice to be neighborly, isn't it? And this, well, this is me being exactly that. She thrust out a hand for him to shake. And Huber noted that her fingers were painted in bright, glittery purple nail polish that was chipped at the edges. Then from inside the house, Hubert heard his phone ringing. Me got to go, he said urgently. And without waiting for her response, he shut the door and hurried back to his front sitting room to answer the call. Rose? Yes, it's me, Dad. Are you okay? You sound a bit out of breath. Breathing a sigh of relief, he settled back down in his chair. Me fine. Just someone at the door, that's all. But you know me. Me dealt with them quickly. No one comes between me and my daughter. So tell me, Professor Bird. What have you been up to this week? And don't leave anything out. Me want to hear it all. It had been almost 20 years since Hubert's daughter, Rose, had relocated to Australia. And rarely a day went by when he didn't wish that she lived closer. He'd never say this to her, of course. The last thing he wanted was to prevent her from living her dreams. But there were moments, usually when he least expected, when he felt her absence so intensely he could barely draw breath. Still, she was a good girl calling every week without fail, and while it wasn't the same as having her with him, it was the next best thing. Anyway, international calls had moved on from when Hubert used to ring his mother back home in Jamaica. Gone were the days of hissing status, static, cross lines, and eye-watering phone bills. With today's modern technology, the cost was minimal and the lines so crystal clear, it was almost like being in the same room. Without need for further prompting, Rose told him about the faculty meetings she chaired, the conferences and faraway places she had agreed to speak at, and the fancy meals out she'd enjoyed with friends. Hubert, Hubert always loved hearing about the exciting and glamorous things she'd been up to. It made him profoundly happy to know that she was living such a full and contented life. After a short while, Rose drew her, no, her news to a close. Right then, that's more than enough about me. How about you, Pops? What have you been up to? Hubert chuckled. Now tell me, girl, why does a fancy la-di-da-da academic like you want to know what a boring old man like me has been doing with his days? You a glutton for punishment? Rose heaved a heavy but good-natured sigh. Honestly, Dad, you're like a broken record. Every single time I call, you say, why you want to know about what me up to? And I say, because I'm interested in your life, Dad. And you say something like, well, on Tuesday, me climb Mount Everest. And on Wednesday, me tap dance with that nice lady from Strictly. Then I say, really, Dad? And then finally, you laugh that big laugh of yours and tell me the truth. It's so frustrating. For once, can you please just tell me what you've been up to without making a whole song and dance about it? Hubert chuckled again. His daughter's impression of him had been note perfect, managing to replicate both the richness of his voice and the in. in intricacies of the diction of a Jamaican man who had called England his home for the past 60 years. Me not sure me like your tone, young lady, he scolded playfully. Good, retorted Rose. You're not meant to. And if you don't want to hear more of it, you'll stop teasing me and tell me what you've really been up to this week. Me was only having a little fun, Rose. You know that, relented Hubert. But me consider myself told off, okay? So what have I been up to? He slipped on his reading glasses and reached for the open notepad on the table next to him. Well, on Tuesday, me take a trip out to the garden center, the big one on Oakley Road. You know it? Me buy a few bedding plants for the front garden, 
make the most of this mild spring we're having. And then we stayed on there for lunch. Sounds lovely. Did Dottie, Dennis, and Harvey go too? Of course. We had a whale of a time. Dottie was teasing Dennis about him gardening skills. Dennis was play fighting with Harvey in the bedding plant section. And all the while me trying to keep that rowdy bunch in line. Rose laughed. Sounds like a good time. I wish I'd been there. How's Dottie's Scatia? Scatica? By the way, still playing her up? Hubert referred to his notepad again. Oh, you know how these things are when you're old. They come and go. Poor Dottie. Give her my love, won't you? And how about Dennis's great-grandson? How did he get on with his trials for... Who was it again? Once again, Huber referred to his notepad. Only this time, he couldn't see the entry he was looking for. Me think, me think it was Watford, he said, panicking. Are you sure? I would have remembered if you'd said Watford, because that's where Robin's mother's family is, are from. No, last time we spoke, you definitely said West Ham. That's it. You said it was West Ham. Hubert frantically flipped through his notebook, and sure enough, there were the words West Ham underlined next to Dennis's great-grandson. Actually, you might be right about that, he said eventually. But really, Watford or West Ham, what does it matter? Him not my great-grandson. Rose chuckled heartily, clearly amused by her father's charming indifference to details. No, Pops, I suppose he isn't. But how did he get on anyway? Do you know what, said Hubert abruptly? Me didn't ask Dennis, and him didn't bring it up. Oh, Dad, chided Rose. What are you like? You really should take an interest in your friends, you know. They're good for your health. I came across a very interesting study the other day that said people with a small group of good friends are more likely to live longer. Well, with friends like Dottie, Dennis, and Harvey, even if me don't live for eternity, it will certainly feel like it. Hubert laughed and then cleared his throat. Now, darling, that's more than enough about me. Tell me more about this conference you go into in Mexico. You're giving a big speech, you say? They talked for a good while longer, covering not just her trip to Mexico, but also the new book proposal she was working on and the plans she had to finally landscape the garden so that she could make the most of her pool. Hubert relished every last detail she shared with him and could have listened to her talk all day. And so, as always, it was with a heavy heart that he realized their time was coming to an end. Right then, Pops, I'd better be going. I've got to be up early in the morning as I'm picking up a visiting professor flying in from Canada. What are your plans for the rest of the week? Oh, you know, this and that. Now come on, Pops. Remember what we agreed? No messing about. Just tell me what you're up to. Hubert flicked to the, flip, flicked to the most recent page of his notebook. Well, tomorrow night, Daddy wants to try bingo down at the new place that's just opened up in town. Saturday, Dennis and me have talked about going to a country pub for lunch. Sunday, Harvey is having everyone round for a big roast. And Monday, me having the day to myself to work in the garden. And for the rest of the week, me have no idea, but me sure Daddy's cooking up some plans. That certainly sounds like a packed schedule, said Rose. I don't know how you do it. Because he doesn't. Neither do I, darling. Neither do I. Anyway, you take care scene soon. Uh, uh. Anyway, you take care. Me speak to you soon. Ending the call, Hubert sat for a moment contemplating his conversation with Rose. He had nearly put his foot in it once or twice. He really was going to either have a brain transplant or at the very least get himself a better system for taking notes. Picking up the pen from the table beside him, he wrote down, make better notes in his pad, then tossed it to one side with, with such force 
that puss who had curled up in his lap again woke up and stared at him accusingly. Don't start with me, said Hubert, trying to avoid her gaze. Puss continued to stare. You know it's not like me enjoy doing this. Still, Puss stared. It's not like me got a choice in the matter, is it? Puss gave Hubert one last disdainful glower before jumping down to the floor and stalking out of the room as if to say she didn't tolerate liars. Because the truth was, Hubert Bird was a liar and a practiced one at that. Not a single word he had said to his daughter was true. It was lies, all lies, and he felt absolutely wretched about it. Okay, so those are our three picks for June Monthly Book Club. You have your choice between a romance with indigenous Mexican representation, Lizards Hold the Sun by Danny Trujillo. You have the option of a debut novel with a hint of magical realism, Notes on Her Son by Jennifer Neal. And you have All the Lonely People by Mike Guile, um, which is perfect for Caribbean Heritage Month and is a heartwarming novel. I'm not sure which one I'm going to be reading this month, but as soon as I do, I'll let you know and you can read with me and chat with me about it on Instagram. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Diversity and BIPOC Representation in Books. Book rep matters, so let's read diversity together. Until next time, bye!